Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we have one of our favorite types of episodes. We're doing a Career Pathways episode with 2020 Aquaculture Innovation Award winner, Simao Zacharias. He's a researcher at the University of Stirling in Scotland. And uh, we have just, an, it's just an amazing story that he tells. Really good conversation. I really think you're going to love it. But before that, Make sure that you are subscribed to Aquademia wherever you listen to podcasts. You want to reach out to us, send us an email, podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. We are on social at AquademiaPod. And wherever you're listening to us, make sure to leave us a rating and review. That's right. So without any further ado, let's get right into it. Enjoy this conversation we had with Simao, and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. We desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. We're sitting down with Simao Zacharias, who is a researcher at the University of Sterling. And he is also, uh, if that name sounds familiar and you attended the Goal Conference, uh, you've heard his name because he was the winner of the 2020 Aquaculture Innovation Award for his research on eye stock ablation in shrimp. So Simao agreed to come on the show because every year we want to start having uh, the winner of the Innovation Award come on and talk about what they did. But Simao has a really interesting career and, and a life that he's led. So he, we are going to do a Career Pathways episode with him. So, Simao, I'm going to have you go ahead, give a quick introduction of who you are, and then just tell us your story. We're excited to learn. Uh, okay. Thank you again for this opportunity uh, you give me to share my story, uh, my career path uh, in aquaculture. Uh, I'm originally from Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique is a, an Eastern African country. Uh, it's also a coastal country with uh, nearly 3,000 kilometers of coastal line. I started my career in aquaculture, aquaculture in Mozambique uh, when I went to university to do my undergraduate uh, degree in marine biology. So during my undergraduate, undergraduate degree, uh, I started uh, getting involved in a research project to set up tilapia farming at the university. Uh, this project was funded by a Canadian project. Uh, which was hosted by University of Victoria in Canada. So uh, I worked with them to set up the tilapia farming during the three years. So when so it, the the research was literally to set up f a farming system. Yeah, to set up a farming system and also to evaluate uh, water quality uh, from the estuary where we would uh, source the water for tilapia farming. So I spent uh, the first year collecting water quality data around the, the year and to see how, uh, when is the appropriate time to farm tilapia in that area. So that was first step. And then uh, we move on uh, to con construct effing ponds and then uh, uh, stock them with the tilapia and see the growth performance and everything. So uh, when I finished my undergraduate, uh, well, actually, I was working that project nearly 
almost for free you know like in some project they have uh, some money they uh, can pay you but that project i was doing it for free and i remember like some guys were saying well you know you're working this project for free but uh, uh, probably you could uh, they could pay you and they don't pay you but at that moment uh, i wasn't concerned about the money what they want what i wanted was to learn because i knew that i was learning something from there and would be useful in the future so when i finished my degree in marine biology the responsible the canadian guy responsible for the project uh, jackie littlepage now he's uh, uh emirate professor from university of victoria right so uh he asked me if I wanted to continue my career in aquaculture field. So uh, following what I've learned during the tilapia farming project, I accepted the offer because uh, uh, during that time, I realized that uh, aquaculture is something which I really wanted to do and it would be a, a good way to help other people. I always like to help uh, people when possible. So uh, if I could uh farm uh, fish or other aquatic organism and they help feed uh the local people it would be great uh, for me so i decided to accept the offer uh so when uh, i got everything uh ready i went to brazil uh, at federal university of santa catarina in florianopolis it's uh it's an island uh in south brazil and uh, uh, I went there to do to pursue my master in aquaculture science. So that's the way I started. I started to have more in-depth knowledge about aquaculture science, and uh, I also started there working with the shrimp farming, uh, specifically Pinos Vaname. So I stayed there. So that's almost where to... it all started with yeah. shrimp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So was was your thesis based on? Something similar to what you did, the eye stock ablation with shrimp, or uh, was it something different? Uh, what uh, actually was something different, but my experience with shrimp uh, uh, hatchery uh, techniques, uh, larviculture, nursery, uh, I learned to work on these techniques all in Brazil. So during the two years and a half, I was living at uh, this uh, marine shrimp laboratory of the Federal University of Santa Catarina. And uh, uh, was working the hatchery, nursery, and grow out. So that's where basically uh, everything started with uh, shrimp farming. My research work, uh, my first research work on shrimp, uh, was basically on trying to improve bioflock technology, application of a bioflock technology uh, in a nursery to grow out stage. Uh, specifically uh, try to apply bioflock technology and same time uh, managing uh, different ion concentration uh, in the low salinity water as uh, you know that uh, when you farm a farmer in, in low salinity water or fresh water in the inland areas you need to make some correction water correction in, in terms of the main ion potassium magnesium so the shrimp can grow uh, fast and have high survival. But no one has done this before when uh, applying bioflock technology. So that's where I started doing my first research work uh, with the pinyons vaname. What, and, did, uh, uh, what kind of results did you get from? Well, uh, I t tested the tree concentration, like 
the control uh, where I consider the control is uh, the middle concentration and then I had one which was below the standard and uh, the other one a bit higher than the standard. But at the end of the trial, uh, I found that in the biophilocal system, even if you, if you have a low concentration of potassium magnesium uh, at the end of your culture period, the performance of the shrimp can be similar to those uh, farmed in a, a normal uh, initial uh, potassium magnesium concentration which uh, contradict a little bit when you are doing this in um, clear water system. What happens is uh, in the biophilogal system, the dynamics of uh, these ions is completely different to uh, clear water system and also uh, FN ponds. So in the biophilogal system, uh, it's a closed system where you barely uh, renew water. So you, you, you will have something different where the uh, actually the ion concentration they might increase because you'll be adding uh, molasses as a source of uh, organic carbon but at the same time also it's a source of just ions and uh, the feed the feed uh, will all contribute to uh, to correct uh, the water of your system in, in, in a bare flux system yeah, the more so, organic matter you have in there, the more it's going to kind of refilter itself. And exactly, exactly. So cool. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, well, you know, uh, one step always leads to another. Yeah. Uh, when I finished my master there, uh, well, first place I was, uh, I was thinking to stay in Brazil and uh, continue doing my PhD or research work there, but I decided to go back to Mozambique. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, contribute in Mozambique. So I went back to Mozambique and uh, uh, I worked there as a lecturer. I worked first at Eduardo Mondlane University as a lecturer and then I went to this uh, Polytechnic Institute in South Mozambique where uh, I worked for one year and a half as a lecturer before I came to Scotland. And uh, during that period uh, I knew that um, I needed to do a PhD because uh, with the PhD, I knew that uh, it would be a great thing for me. I would use it uh, to uh, get a future international project uh, to set up whether in Mozambique or somewhere in Africa or have this uh, international networking. So during that period, I started looking for scholarship to do my PhD. And then um, I used to uh, belong uh, to this Trimpy uh, News uh, uh, news list, Trippy news list, which was managed by Bob, Bob Rosenberg. So, oh, yeah, yeah uh, I saw this, uh, this advertisement for the PhD position on Trimpy Eye Stock Ablation Project. And I was like, well, uh, I've worked with this in Brazil um, as a part of my uh, master program. And something uh, I was uh, interested from that point uh, that uh, I wanted to do, I was questioning myself if there would be any uh, alternative to to stop uh, ablating the shrimp female uh, for for reproduction. So yeah, uh, can I, I can I pause you right there? Uh, yeah. Um, in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with eye stock ablation, can you give a quick synopsis of what that is? It's just real simple for, uh, for anyone who who might not know what that what we mean when we say eye stock ablation. 
Uh, okay. Um, eye stock ablation is a, a technique used at shrimp hatchery to induce it, uh, the shrimp female to mature and produce eggs uh, rapidly. So what you uh, basically or how it works, you just cut one of the shrimp eyes by cauterization. It can be by other method, but you cut one of the shrimp eyes. As in the shrimp eyes, uh, in shrimp eyes, there are most of the hormones which control the all uh, reproduction, uh, growth, and the other metabolic process in the shrimp. So when you cut one of the shrimp eyes, you reduce the hormone which inhibit reproduction in the shrimp. So when you cut it. Uh, the uh, that hormone is reduced and then automatically it onset or switch on the reproduction mode uh, on the shrimp female. Right. So, it's so really so of- interesting. Like, who would have ever thought that hormones would be found in a shrimp's eyeball? Like, it's really so interesting. I, there's a lot of a lot of different aquaculture processes uh you know they figured out certain triggers for these kind of things like with a lot of shellfish hatcheries they'll they can manipulate the water temperature and it'll cause them to spawn and things like that so it's it's interesting that they've figured all this stuff out doesn't eye stock ablation and this might be more for something like lobster but doesn't it cause crustaceans to um shed their shell as well oh yeah um in general uh when you ablate the, the crustacean they will molt very frequently so they'll be uh, so they can regenerate that what it, they've lost right yes yeah okay uh, I, I thought i remembered that from from one of my classes <laughs> in, in school <laughs> exactly exactly yeah okay. well cool. and uh, well apart from that it also affected the well-being of the broodstock you per se that's why when you have when you apply astoc ablation, you would have a higher mortality rate of the broodstock. Uh, they would mm-hmm. need energy for to uh, to breed, uh, to reproduce, and same time to maintain all this molting process. So they need uh, had the had demand of energy which basically they don't have. So uh, they will easily uh, uh, get exhausted and uh, die uh, earlier than expected. Which is why it would be a really big benefit to figure out another way to release those hormones than eye stock ablation, right? Which is leading to your research, is that? Yes, yeah. Uh, basically what uh, I did uh, on my PhD research project, eye stock ablation, was to manipulate uh, the feeding uh, when you uh, feed the animal with the high quality feed uh, before the animal goes to uh, maturation and reproduction tank, it stimulated the female to mature faster and uh, started reproducing naturally. Of course, other parameters, uh, water quality parameters, they should be in that standard because they also uh, indirectly they contribute to stimulate shrimp to mature as well. But the nutrition is very crucial component to induce the shrimp uh, to mature without uh, cutting the shrimp eyes. So can you kind of walk us through kind of some of the steps that you did uh, with this research? I mean, you just gave us a kind of quick rundown, but I'm curious as to kind of what your different variants were that you were testing and what your results were. And kind of how, mm. like, how long did this take? He like, walk us through it. We got plenty of time. So, <laughs> yeah. And was well, this like an animal welfare 
standpoint, I mean, to me, I, I would assume that it it was, and given that's such a big buzzword in fisheries in industry, and yeah, yeah the seafood industry in general, I wonder if that was some of the basis of looking into this pro- procedure and, and figuring out if it is actually needed or not. Uh, so I guess, yeah, my question is, was animal welfare considered in, in how maybe this came to be? Yes. Uh, currently, uh, the consumers, they are more aware about uh, animal farming and they demand uh, the farmers to apply uh, high welfare farming practice. So uh, due to this concern, uh, iStock ablation popped up again. Like the industry, they already knew that iStock ablation uh, at some point, they would have to stop using it. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, they haven't been able to find a way to replace the technique. So I, uh, welfare uh, welfare is a key uh, driver to this research and uh, to find a way to replace this uh, isotope ablation. So um, coming back to your question, Sean. Um, well, the first thing I did when I went to... Uh, to Honduras, where I did the majority part of my uh, research work. Uh, I went to Honduras to do it with uh, one of my research project collaborator, C. Joy. Uh, now they uh, are part of a cookie family company, so C. Joy Cook. So uh, that's where I did the majority part of uh, my research project. So the first thing uh, I did was to compare between to see between uh, ablated and non-ablated animal, how would they perform? Uh, considering that uh, it's been a while since uh, anyone hasn't done uh, this type of research. And uh, as you know, that the shrimp farming practice, uh, even in the hatchery, they change over time. So we wanted to see what would happen. So at the beginning, uh, which is part of our first, uh, my first paper, uh, which I published last year, Journal of Aquaculture. I found that you could have similar productivity. You'll have a uh, same amount of eggs and nuclei if you don't ablate. When you change your, your sex ratio, or one male to two female, if you use non-ablated animal, or because uh, normally in when you use ablated animals, you, you use only one male to one female. But if you increase one more female. Uh, without the uh, ablation, then you'll have similar productivity. And better survivability? Yes, yeah, better survivability. Uh, so how does that balance between, you, you get one method where you could potentially have to increase your brood stock because you have lower survivability from the ablation, but then on the other side, you're bumping up your brood stock numbers from the beginning to have twice as many females with each process. So... What, did those balance themselves out in a way? Yeah, at some point, yes. Uh, you will have uh, less mortality in a non-ablated animal. With ablated animal, uh, due to higher mortality, you will need more broodstock to to restock your maturation tank or to replace those broodstock. Uh, uh, then you would need, uh, uh, at the end of the day, the number of broodstock will be almost similar when uh, when you look uh, at the number of broodstock you would need in both mm. cases. So this was uh, the, the first uh, observation I had in my research. But the second one, uh, I had to uh, do the uh, prematuration trial 
because uh, or in some other researches, uh, uh, the researchers they've seen that in, if you put a broodstock in a prematuration and you feed them with squid polycates, it would improve the reproductive performance. So uh, I did that and to see how this would affect uh, to non-ablated animal. So one of the key findings, uh, one of the key findings, uh, which uh, is kind of a contradict the first one, but what that's what the industry want. You wouldn't need necessarily to increase the number of a female if you take your broodstock and they go through prematuration condition with a high quality feed. Uh, they would, uh, you would have, if you have one female, uh, one male to one female, they would produce a similar amount of uh, eggs and nuclei when compared to ablated animals. So uh, we can, we can, uh, I kind of came here uh, in a second scenario where uh, if you do prematuration and you prepare very well your uh, female broodstock, they will respond faster and they will produce the same way with ablated animals. You will not need, you will not need to in, in, increase the number of females. So just got to plan a little better. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, from other experience there and uh, what I've been discussing with some other hatchery managers and more experienced uh, people, what happened is... Uh, Depending on the shrimp genetic you use, which shrimp line you use, some shrimp lines, they respond faster and they can uh, reproduce normally without the need of increasing in uh, uh, female number in your maturation tank. But some uh, strains, they kind of uh, beat, uh, they delay, they respond uh, very slowly. So when uh, uh, making this decision to have a prematuration condition and you see whether you need to increase the number of your female, you also have to look at the quality of broodstock or the strain of the broodstock you have, uh, because this will also have effect on how your broodstock will respond to non-ablation process. So pretty big benefits to playing the long game, doing some selective breeding and then yeah. preparing them for maturity ahead of time instead of picking out the shrimp that you think have good traits, cutting off the eye stock and then potentially losing that brood stock. So Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's gotcha. the idea. You have to prepare well. Like It's the same, same to animals or even humans in general, you know. You have to prepare yourself when, if you are not well fed in a good condition, probably... It will take time if you want to, uh, in case of a human, if a lady want to get pregnant. So it's kind of a bit related, you know, <laughs> it's a bit related to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is uh, basically uh, the the key findings uh, for or to induce the shrimp uh, to reproduce without ablation. But one of the key uh, questions uh, I had and the industry also had together with my supervisors was to know if you uh, stop it, uh, if you ablate or stock ablation, this would have any impact on uh, post larvae uh, performance in larvae culture mm-hmm. or the shrimp performance in nursery grow out. So I did this uh, uh, follow up, uh, taking a uh, now player from the non-ablated and ablated animals who run larvae culture trials under commercial conditions and also control condition. And the, what they found was 
under normal condition, uh, you you wouldn't find any uh, significant difference. The growth performance will be similar. The survival uh, at the end of larvae culture, nurse and grow out will also be similar. So uh, if you stop stock ablation, uh, it will not affect uh, the performance of your shrimp uh, under normal condition. But did you see better performance from the non-ablated Nopliae or was it pretty much the same? Well, under normal condition, uh, when it's under normal condition, I mean, when there's no stress, no, no uh, stress, where mm -hmm. you have uh, all uh, water quality parameters and you're feeding well your animals, they will perform in this uh, similar way. Uh, when you have uh, the Nopliae, post larvae or juveniles producing the non-ablated shrimp, or ablated uh, animals, they will perform similar way. But uh, I had the first indication of this uh, dif dif uh, different quality of a non-ablated post larvae uh, in Honduras when I used this saline stress test. In general, the, the farmers, when they source the post larvae at the hatchery, uh, one of the techniques they use to evaluate the quality of the post larvae is to do a saline stress test, which uh, uh, involves uh, putting your shrimp from strength uh, uh, saline water, uh, the normal saline water, to fresh water, or zero PPT for 30 minutes, and then you put it back to the previous salinity. You know, so after nearly one hour, you would. Uh, uh, you would count to see how many shrimp survived. So in this saline stress test, I found that uh, the post larvae produced on non-ablated animal, they had a higher survival compared to post larvae from ablated animals. That That's was what we're looking for. Yeah. That's what we're looking for. Well, <laughs> if there was no real difference between them, then it would really just come down to the animal welfare. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Of, yeah. Well, the, you know, you see the same results either way, so you might as well not mutilate this animal. You know, <laughs> um, so that's 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 where I was going with that question. I was wondering if there really was um, a difference afterwards that you would notice, but it seems like there there really is almost more benefits to not uh, ablating the eye stock to than there is too. So, oh yeah. So um, although I saw this difference in the silent stress test. It, this wasn't reflected at the farming level, look mm. at the growth performance and survival. So based on this, uh, me and my supervisors, uh, we decided that we needed to do a more robust test. In this case, it uh, would be great to do disease challenge test and see it would uh, have similar results. Uh, and to do this, uh, we couldn't continue doing this in Honduras because in Honduras they don't have a uh, disease challenge facility. So uh, my supervisors uh, helped me uh, to go to Thailand uh, and work with Benchmark and use the disease challenge facility there. And same time, uh, we managed to get uh, post larvae uh, produced from non-ablated and, ablate and ablated animals. Uh, produced by Sayako Siam, which is also a, a breeding in the hatchery company uh, in Thailand. Were you so, able to uh, control the parameters of like what what feed was used for the non-ablated and all this? Like, make sure you you were up on that preparation. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Uh, 
uh, well, I, I visited a hatchery and uh, we, this is the good thing of working uh, to do a collaborative work. So we discussed how things should be done and they produced uh, the uh, now play and the poisonary from non-ablated animals and uh, they shipped them to benchmark research and development uh, facility. So I received the animals there and uh, I did uh, the disease challenge trials. So for puzzle larvae, as in general, uh, the HPND, also known as uh, as a mortality syndrome disease, in general it affects uh, the post larvae at the nursery stage. So I decided to do the MS challenge on post larvae. Uh, at the beginning, we were not expecting uh, the results to come out the way they did. So uh, when I did uh, the challenge with the post larvae, the funny thing is uh, we decided to do this uh, in a blind test. So we asked the hatchery to send us the animals uh, in a, uh, they were all coded. So we didn't know which post larvae were from non-ablated and mm. which one from ablated animals. So we just did the trials uh, without knowing which one was from non-ablated and ablated. So uh, after we uh, finished uh, the challenge with HPND or MS, we saw that one group had uh, significantly higher survival compared to another. And then we were like, well, let's hope the one with higher survival is from non-ablated animal, you know. <laughs> because uh, if it was the other way around, then it, it would like kind of <laughs> Back to square one kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was yeah. that the case? Uh, no, no, no. It, was, it wasn't <laughs> the case. So uh, to find out that we needed to do the challenge with the white spot uh, disease. So uh, we waited the animals to grow to juveniles uh, until they were juveniles. And uh, we did the challenge with the juveniles uh, and the white spot uh, syndrome virus. So the same group which had higher survivor in with the MS also had uh, higher survivor with the white spot syndrome virus. So after the two trials, that's uh, when the hatchery, uh, they told us which one were, were from non-ablated and ablated animals. So it turned out that the post larvae and the juveniles which had higher survival were the animals produced from non-ablated oh, uh, female. And uh, <laughs> well, uh, we, we were so happy and same time like... We couldn't believe, you know. Yeah. Uh, it like perfectly confirmed what you were hoping would happen. Which, oh, yes, which does yes. not happen that often in science. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So uh we had to celebrate that with uh with some good Thai food, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So was it really uh like that was uh, the first uh, trials for my PhD, and it was like a, a golden. I was closing my PhD with a golden key, you know. Yeah. yeah I was like, yeah. oh my goodness, I can't believe this. <laughs> and uh, from that point, we were like, well, this thing, can, I think this thing can win uh, an award, you know. So we kind of started thinking on uh, the. Uh, GA, the Global Aquaculture Innovation Award, if you could apply to that and uh, say what would happen. You know? yeah. uh, we knew that it's something no one has proven before. It's a new thing, so we needed uh, to shout the industry of this innovative research. Uh, well, guys, uh, uh, guess what happened? Did. 
<laughs> yeah. So you how applied, did you end up at, a finalist? How did you end up at Sterling? Uh, well, uh, when I saw this uh, PhD uh, research project on aesthetic ablation here in Sterling, uh, I I knew before the reputation the University of Sterling had uh, worldwide, and uh, was like, well, uh, in general, when you are Mozambican. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to get uh, like this type of a PhD research, uh, research project. So I just applied, uh, sent my, I sent my CV and uh, motivation later. Uh, and I was like, well, I'm just applying. So I got a surprise when uh, my main supervisor, David Delete, he emailed me saying I was shortlisted for the interview. So I had the interview. Um, and uh, after the interview, uh, well, in general, after the interview, uh, even if it went well, you always, you're always like, uh, sometimes you don't know what would happen, yeah. you know? Uh, yeah. But the day uh, he told me I was uh, selected to do the PhD, uh, I, f- I think that was one of the happiest days in my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Firstly, because, uh, you know, I've always dreamed to do, to study in the UK. Uh uh, it was a, a dream, uh, nearly like an impossible dream, you know, uh, mainly considering uh, my background. Like uh, in my family, uh, to date, I'm the first guy who has been to university. So I'm the first. Not <laughs> only did you go to yeah. university, but you like. Then master's, <laughs> then PhD. You set oh, the bar yeah. high for the rest of your family. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, you know. At that time, it was almost impossible. So it was like a dreaming coming through to come to come and do my PhD in in the UK. And uh, as I mentioned before, like uh, one stage always uh, contributed to next step, or one step uh, contributed to another. So uh, my supervisor he then told me, said, look, one of the reason he accepted me to do the PhD was basically related to what I did in Brazil, and I had this experience in Latin America. Uh, so this would be good for me, as most of my field work would be in Central America. So I kind of uh, had this uh, experience, uh, cultural experience as well. Like it's, uh, this is one of the things he wanted, because sometimes if you are not used to that culture, if it's mm-hmm. difficult to adapt, it might affect the way you would work there. You know, So uh, that's mm-hmm. how I came to Sterling and uh, yeah. So aquaculture has really taken you to almost every continent. All over the world, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, up to date, I still talk to my Canadian friend, uh, Jake Littlepage. I remember he told me, like, you know, Simao, if you do aquaculture and you uh, keep doing uh, your degree in aquaculture, I think you can go far. And today, <laughs> uh, actually, he was one of uh uh, one of my reference, uh, uh, he wrote a letter to my uh, my PhD supervisor, David Lito, uh, recommending me. So uh, after I won the award, he sent uh, another email to David and said, look, I told you Simon was a good student. <laughs> <laughs> trying to take credit. Told you so. <laughs> good for him. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, if in the future your work sends you to any research research in Antarctica, we hope that you download at least one of our <laughs> yeah. episodes. We're still so waiting that- <laughs> for a download in Antarctica. It's the only continent <laughs> yeah. left. It's the only <laughs> continent left. <laughs> So, Simao, now that you have this information from your research, what is your hope for how the world can adopt this? And what do you see yourself doing next now that you have this information and now that you've won this award? Uh, well, uh, I'm happy now that uh, the shrimp industry, they are more aware now and they are working hard to uh, adapt their hatchery practice. So some people, they've been in contact with me and my supervisors uh, asking us to help them uh, on uh, changing and adapting the hatchery practice. So uh, not only with the Pinyas Vaname, uh, other shrimp farmers who are working with the monodomes, they also want uh, to change. So the industry is already moving forward. Uh, for example, the company in the... Uh, uh, Thailand, Sayakwa, who provided the post larvae uh, for the disease challenge trials. Uh, one of the hatchery in Indonesia is completely now, completely moved to a non ablation system now. Uh, wow. Yeah, in Big Honduras, where, when the other companies, shrimp companies, realized about our work with the CJOY, they also started doing uh, similar work and uh, changing uh, knowledge with us, and they also moved it to a non-ablation system. So the industry is moving fast now, and uh, I'm happy to know that uh, I was able, me and my supervisors and everyone who funded the project, uh, we managed uh, uh, to have this uh, impact to the whole industry. So it's a matter of time now that uh, uh, GA will report that the uh, majority or 95% of the shrimp hatcheries, they no longer use uh, stock ablation. So everyone is working to adapt the uh, hatchery practice uh, to that. <laughs> so uh, I'm really happy to be part of this contribution to, for the shrimp industry. That's amazing. Uh, uh, and the research, well, the research, they don't stop here. You know, uh, One of the key things uh, we still have to understand uh, is to explain how the offspring, the uh, post-larvae juveniles producing non-ablated animals, they are robust to disease, to disease challenge. Uh, we still want to understand this mechanism, and this will uh, will help us in future to set up a new practice or uh, develop products which will help uh, to boost the shrimp robustness to disease. Yeah. Well, now I think uh, this award is confirmed uh, something I always thought about. I I like teaching, but at the same time I also like doing research. So I think. Uh, uh, this uh, innovation award is something which tell me that I should keep uh, contribute uh, to the shrimp industry, doing research which are uh, uh, important uh, for development uh, of the industry. So uh, my next step, uh, it's a good question. Sometimes uh, you never know where you will end up, right? Especially but, uh, you. Would... <laughs> You've been all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I hope I can go to Australia. That's the, <laughs> yes, the only you place have to I'd, get like, there. I'd like to go in the future. So, uh, 
I'd like to continue working on research and development area, uh, whether in academia or companies, uh, private companies, uh, mm -hmm. biotech companies, uh, and so on. Awesome. Yeah. So this whole story started with you at Mozambique, and I'm curious, what's the aquaculture scene like in Africa, specifically there, and do you see any of the things that you've learned on this relatively short but well-accomplished journey that you could bring back there and possibly enhance whatever sort of aquaculture uh, is happening down there? Yes, uh, thank you for asking that. You know. <laughs> uh, well, I will start talking about the Mozambique. Yeah, unfortunately, in Mozambique, aquaculture is still like at the baby stage. Um, we only have one uh, shrimp company, it's actually a French company. They've been there for almost uh, 10 years. And they produce a premier product uh, to Europe, right? Uh, producing monodome. But uh, looking mm -hmm. at uh, other species, we have um, uh, some tilapia farming. Uh, we have now uh, very few uh, tilapia farming uh, private companies, uh, but they're still uh, under development. So in general, mm -hmm. uh, we're still at the baby stage in Mozambique. A uh, few days ago, I was giving interview to this newspaper in Mozambique, and the, one of the things I was telling them, what uh, Mozambique, not only Mozambique, uh, also the majority of the African countries, uh, uh, we needed to adapt uh, the, strate the strategy and the policy used to develop aquaculture and make them work and make them uh, more focused. Because uh, when you look at, uh, at some countries, like in Mozambique, some things are not really clear. So you needed to make sure that you have a clear framework, framework which will allow you to incentivate uh, local people and for any uh, investor to invest in aquaculture in Mozambique. So in Africa overall, Egypt is still the main uh, tilapia producer in Africa. Uh, some other countries also are producing mainly uh, tilapia, but we still have a lot uh, to move on. Like when you look at uh, our global aquaculture production, Africa is uh, almost like uh, the, the rest of the other countries or yeah, the rest of the other countries. Uh, this is why uh, people say that if you talk about aquaculture, it's usually uh, Asia and uh, America, so Asia and the Americas. So uh, we still have uh, a lot to do. We have all the resource. And uh, I believe that uh, aquaculture is a, uh, or Africa is the future for aquaculture development uh, in uh, 10 years' time. But it definitely we need, is. Yeah. Uh, because but, uh, since there's so much just waiting to happen, there's so many opportunities. And since now we have all of this research and development and technology, these these future companies in Africa can start producing already at a much more sustainable level than a bunch of other com companies and countries around the world. Like they can start already way ahead of the game because everything nowadays is so much more we know a lot more now. Exactly. Uh, this is why uh, I discussed with some folk in aquaculture in Mozambique. There's already technology out there. What we need is to take the technology and adapt it to our reality, whether in Mozambique or somewhere else in Africa. But mm -hmm. at the same time, uh, I'm a bit of um, 
you know, uh, when you look at the aquaculture, depending on which uh, way you want to go, it can be focused as an economic activity where you would export a majority of product. But at the same time, uh, we need also, mainly when you look at developing country, we need also to provide the uh, nutrition, uh, reduce food insecurity through aquaculture. So uh, when set, setting up this politics, we need to make sure that uh, apart from uh, producing uh, product to export, you also need uh, product for local people and also affordable for local people. As, uh, some guy says from the World Fish Center that uh, aquaculture is not, uh, it cannot be seen as a, the only solution for food insecurity. It has to be part uh, of, uh, of a, a strategy to reduce food insecurity in a developing country exactly. or in a poor, poor community. It's a tool so, in the toolbox. Uh, yes, ex exactly. Yep. So it has to be there integrated with other activities. So all together can help contribute uh, uh, for poverty reduction or uh, food insecurity reduction. You know, one of the main uh, key problems we have in a developing country, we're talking about Mozambique, uh, associated to infrastructures. You know, for example, Madi was mentioning about uh, technologies. Yeah, but sometimes uh, just technology. Uh, uh, it would be very, very expensive to set mm -hmm. them up there because we Definitely. don't have enough infrastructure uh, to set up this kind of system. So, uh, so you need the big investors to come into that area and yes, got to yeah. find ways to attract them. So, yeah, we needed the big investor, and same time the local governments they also needed to make sure that they also work in other areas to contribute because it's all connected, mm -hmm. you know. Sometimes uh, you might have this area which is appropriate for aquaculture, but uh, uh, you, you don't have any uh, ro roads to go there. It's almost impossible uh, uh, to travel to these places. So the only way would be to have uh, investors, big investors who would set up uh, this uh, big companies, uh, and at the end of the day, they would need to export the product because the investment is so high and the production cost is only feasible if you have to export that. You know? mm. But hopefully, if, if that were to happen, then maybe people that see that company thriving in Mozambique or wherever, they would then feel motivated to start their own like local company and then th the word of aquaculture would get spread there. Oh That's yes, hope, yeah, yeah. De <laughs> uh, definitely. Uh, you reminded me of a, a, a one of the barrier we have there is financing, where you can get investment from. Uh, as the aquaculture is not really settled down there, so we need some good example where you can prove, say, look, uh, you we need can something do to attract this. the money. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's something people that, don't want to invest uh, if they don't know it's if they're unsure if it'll be successful. So you need some success to attract it. Makes it's per, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, I believe uh, soon uh, Africa will be uh, one of the key points for aquaculture development uh, and the contributing to global food security goals. You know. So b we're we're getting a little low on time, but before we wrap up. When we were speaking to Samao um, in our initial meeting, he was saying that since he won this award, he's kind of become a little bit of a celebrity in the industry, huh? What's uh, what, what's that been like, being kind of quasi, 
seafood famous? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> actually, I'm more famous in my country, well, in the industry as well, but in Mozambique, uh, I've been receiving emails, calls, and uh, yeah, uh, mainly because I'm, I'm representing the country, you know, yeah. and also Africa as a whole. And for being the first African to win the Global Aquaculture Innovation Award, it means a lot for my country and Africa as a whole. So uh, what I've been telling uh, my African fellows and other people is to keep working hard. You know, uh, everyone cheers for you when you win an award, but they have no idea uh the hard work you have what to put behind, to yeah. to get to that years award, and you know? years and it, years it, exactly to have an idea i haven't been to mozambique uh since i started my phd you know i've been traveling doing this research work so um it's part of the sacrifice you might have to to take you know if you want to uh do something which uh contribute uh, uh, to the industry or to the whole community. You, know, you have to work uh, really hard for that. Yeah. And, and it's also uh, good for the university here in the UK and everybody's happy uh, about it. My supervisors, uh, everyone has been getting in touch with my supervisors and to see any future projects. So it's been really, really good, you know. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um... And you know we don't talk enough about Africa. We need to we need to get some more guests on from Africa and here to to get a better representation of everything going on. And I mean it's such a big continent, and there's different things happening in all the different countries. There's a lot to talk about. We just need to establish some contacts. So we may be reaching out to you to see if you get any contacts well, you can def- throw our way. De- definitely, I, I can help you with that, and it would be great actually to have a podcast uh, specifically to discuss the African reality, yeah. opportunity, and all this stuff. So. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah. So the last question that I want to pose that we ask all of our, our folks that come on for the Career Pathways episodes is we do these episodes with the hopes to inspire younger generations to really work hard and, and look at people who are have achieved these feats and, and have done really big research or worked their way up to the tops of companies and things like that. Uh, We want to instill a little bit of inspiration and some ideas of, you know, you can do it too. So what, what would be your advice to someone who is maybe just starting out at university, who is interested in going into aquaculture research or fisheries research or or marine biology, someone who uh, would love to really put in the hard work and, and, get to maybe where you are now what would you say to them well the first thing uh, i would say is uh, never give up on your dreams uh, even when they uh, seem impossible and uh, if you want to achieve your long-term dream every step you take will count and every decision will make will also count so if uh, i didn't accept it to do my master in brazil uh in the aquaculture I wouldn't be here today and no one would know about me. So every step you make will count for your future success. And uh, it also need you need to be patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things uh, uh, take time if you want to achieve uh, something in your life. So uh, I use the younger generation to be patient and work hard uh, to achieve their goals. Uh, I would also uh, 
ask mainly those uh, young generation who come from uh, disprivileged background, where they come from a poor family. You know, uh, in Mozambique and Africa, we have this say like, you 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 may be born in a poor family, doesn't mean you, you will you can die poor. The decision for you uh, to become different, uh, the decision uh, for you to become different, it all depends on you. So you have just to believe yourself. Uh, you work uh, slowly, step by step, and stage by stage, uh, you will get there. You know, uh, when I look back now, uh, it all look impossible, and everyone in Mozambique now, they look at me as a, a really. Uh, an example, uh, inspiring example, uh, even for those people who never believed in my crazy dreams, <laughs> like, oh, well, probably you won't get there. And today everyone say, well, uh, actually everything is possible, you know. Amazing. The other thing I would say is to also, life always gives you opportunity and you need to take advantage of this opportunity. And some opportunity, they, we call them lifetime opportunity. If you miss them, probably you will not have that opportunity. And uh, uh, I would ask also other people to, whenever it's possible, for someone to give opportunity to other person who need it, uh, it's better to give them because they might need someone to show them the door where to go. And if you don't do that, you might be killing someone's dreams or not helping someone to achieve what uh, that person uh, wants to achieve, you know. So I've been uh, blessed to meet people, right people who uh, helped me to say, well, you have to do this and that and follow this and that. So uh, I'm really happy, you know, to have met this kind of people. My supervisors, uh, uh, George Chamberlain, <laughs> they have been my inspiration, you know. So, yeah. Well, we are glad that you uh, followed your dreams and and took those opportunities when they presented themselves. The industry is at a better place because of it. And we definitely hope that you continue to move forward, as we know you will, with your current and future endeavors. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else that you want to get out there before we sign off? Uh, I just want to thank you again for this opportunity to share my story and uh yeah, uh, I'm really happy and uh, I encourage uh, all young people uh, who want to work in aquaculture to go there because aquaculture is only in our hands, uh, the young generation. So we needed to go there. Aquaculture needs us to, to move forward. Amen. And <laughs> yeah. I just want to point out that Simao is a listener. He's subscribed to Aquademia and... If you are not subscribed to Aquademia as you're listening to this, you need to make sure you do that because this is the kind of stuff that we get out here and you're just going to get more of it if you're subscribed. Maddie, Justin, <laughs> do you guys have anything else you want to say? Well, I just want to ask Simao, how is it best for people to contact you if they're interested in getting in touch with you, learning a little bit more? I know you're active on Twitter, mm-hmm. <laughs> LinkedIn. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, they can contact me on this social media, Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, message me. Uh, I'm fine. I will reply uh, whenever uh, it's possible. So. so we'll make sure to link yeah. to Perfect. those in the show notes. For sure. <laughs> yes. Well, Simao, again, thank you. thank you so much 
We really appreciate you joining us, and uh, we look forward to seeing what you do in the future. And we will be in contact with you about uh, getting um, some more highlights out of Africa. Okay. Absolutely. Thank right. you. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, that was our conversation with Simao Zacharias from the University of Sterling. I hope you were as inspired as I was after hearing him talk about his career pathway and tell some of his stories and talk about his research. Just really, really, really inspiring. Yeah, I I don't know about you guys, but I walked away from that episode feeling like I might want to start a career in aquaculture or something. So if you enjoyed this episode, make sure, like we said in the middle of it, make sure you're subscribed to Aquademia wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe so we can just build this community and get this awesome content into more ears. Yeah, if you want to reach us, there's a few ways you can do that. Hit us up on social at Aquademia Pod or send us an email podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. And be sure to subscribe to us wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review. That's that. We are back on our weekly schedule. It's nice to see all of you. Uh, every week now and get excited because we got some good stuff coming up so we'll talk to you next time bye ciao